Jesus is God's perfect lamb who came to earth to pay the penalty for human sin by dying in the place of the sinner. God's perfect justice was completely satisfied by the sacrifice of the sinless God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 29. The Gospel of John, um, this record was written probably more than 50 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So John was probably in his late 80s, early 90s when he wrote it. He wrote it to provide evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John's thesis is very simple. Uh, He states that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, God himself, who came to earth, took on human flesh in order to pay for the sins of the world through his substitutionary death, and that those who place their faith in Christ's death for their sins will experience God's forgiveness, and they can live forever with him in heaven. In order to document that thesis, John organizes his gospel around seven proofs or seven uh, signs, signs that point to the deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ. And he begins by calling eyewitnesses to document his thesis. In a court of law, truth is established on the basis of evidence, some evidence of which is eyewitnesses. So John calls multiple eyewitnesses throughout his gospel, actually calls seven to document the notion, the suggestion, the the affirmation that Jesus Christ is God. He calls John the Baptist, he calls Nathaniel, he calls Peter, he calls the blind man who Jesus healed, he calls Martha, he calls Thomas, and last of all, he calls on our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Interestingly, the two divine witnesses he does not call are recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Remember when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, and as Jesus came up out of the water, what do we see? The Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus like a dove, and the voice of God the Father saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, right? So God the Father is the most important witness as to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. John doesn't call that witness, but the other uh, um, record of the Gospels do. So John begins by calling John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, we went through last week, um, John the Baptist gives testimony to the delegation of Levites and priests who are coming from the Sanhedrin, and they want to know if he's the Christ. He's preaching in the wilderness. God is working a major revival in the land of Israel, which he wants to do before the coming of the Messiah, and they ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? And it says he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. Now that's very, very strong, triple negative in the Greek. He was actually outraged that they would ask him that question, but he tells them emphatically, I'm not the Christ. So that's the first witness John gives. The second witness is when he witnesses to the crowd who's following him, and Jesus shows up. Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, quote, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the second day. The third day is verse 35. Again, the third day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God, verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Here's our principle. 
Jesus is God's perfect lamb who came to earth to pay the penalty for human sin by dying in the place of the sinner. Jesus is God's perfect lamb who came to earth to pay the penalty for human sin by dying in the place of the sinner. Now, the two disciples are Andrew, we know he's named. The disciples not named, we think, is John, who's the human author of this gospel. What was unexpected was that John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. Now, lambs are weak, innocent, helpless, small, ineffective. The nation of Israel is expecting what? A Messiah who is a warrior, a Messiah who is a king, a Messiah who is going to set them free from Roman slavery. They were expecting a warrior king, not a wimpy lamb. But it raises the question, why do we need a Messiah in the first place? What's the big deal about a Messiah coming to earth? Why was that necessary? Well, holy God is completely perfect. And he requires moral perfection of anybody who's going to have a relationship with him. He says, you be perfect as I am perfect. However, the Bible says that all have sinned. No exceptions. Now, sin ultimately is rebellion. It is rebellion against God's person, God's purposes, God's will, God's way. It is treason. It is mutiny against God's rightful authority over everything and everyone. Now, tragically, the consequences of sin is death. God is the source of life, and sin separates us from God. If sin separates us from God, when you're separated from God, then you die. You die two ways. Physical death is when the body is separated from the spirit. The body goes in the ground, the spirit goes to be with God forever. Spiritual death is when the soul, that which lives forever, is separated from God for all eternity. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they died actually three ways, if you accept a tripartite view of man, body, soul, and spirit. Their spirit died instantly when they sinned. They were immediately cut off from a connection with God. They died spiritually immediately upon sin. Their intellect, emotions, and will, their soul began to die. Their relationship began to deteriorate. They started blaming each other, etc. You know the story. And ultimately, their body died. And you say, well, Adam died 950 years later. That took some time to take effect. That's true. But death, the seeds of death were planted at the moment of sin. And that's why Scripture says, as in Adam, we all die. Not just physically, but spiritually as well. Now, the problem with, the, with our sin is that God is perfectly just, so we can't overlook sin. I talk to people and say, well, how come God just doesn't pretend like it didn't happen? Because he's a just judge. And if he pretended it didn't happen, he would no longer be just. He's no longer competent to evaluate and judge our lives if he's not just. So sin has to be paid for. The justice has to be done. And either the sinner's going to pay the penalty for their own sin themselves, or someone else is going to pay it on their behalf. Sin is so serious, it is such a violation of God's will and way, that only death will pay for it. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now let's go back to what John called Christ, the Lamb of God. That was for a reason. Earlier in Israel's history, God commanded Israel to do what? Sacrifice lambs for their sins, one in the morning, one in the afternoon at the tabernacle. Lambs were substitutionary sacrifices. Lambs were innocent. And they were sacrificed for the place, in the place of what? Guilty humans who had sinned. In that sense, animal sacrifices are a picture of Christ. Christ is the Lamb of God. He's innocent. He never sinned, but he dies on behalf of someone else, just like an innocent lamb died on behalf of the guilty human that actually puts the animal to death, which is interesting. So these animal sacrifices look forward to Jesus' perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Problem with animal sacrifice, it doesn't take away sin. It only covers it. What, when performed in faith, animal sacrifices temporarily cover or atone, by the way the word atonement means to cover, covers the sins of people, 
they don't take it away. The author of Hebrews spends an enormous amount of time talking about this. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 11, Every priest, he's talking about earthly high priests, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. In contrast, verse 12, but he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And if you go to Hebrews 4.15, he gives us exhortation and says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Here's our principle. God's perfect justice is completely satisfied by the sacrifice of the sinless God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. God's perfect justice was completely satisfied by the sacrifice of the sinless God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is why Christmas is utterly mind-boggling, incomprehensibly amazing. Animal sacrifices cannot pay for human sin. God said, I will pay your sin penalty myself. God sent his perfect son, Jesus, to come to earth, take on human flesh, die in our place in order to satisfy God's perfect justice. Now, God's, since God's justice is perfect, guess what? The sacrifice also has to be perfect. Only Jesus was qualified to pay for the sins of the world because he's both fully God and fully man at the same time. Since he's fully God, he kept God's law perfectly. He'd never sinned. So he was qualified to pay the penalty for human sin because he was the perfect, sinless sacrifice. And since he's fully human, even though he's not sinless, even though he was sinless, he's qualified to represent us and die in our place. Since Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness, God forgives our sin and adopts us into his forever family. We are exposed to this from the moment of salvation in the church, but we do not understand the depths of what God has done for us for the most part. Christianity is completely unique among all world religions in that the God we worship sacrificed himself and died on behalf of those who worship him so that they could be saved because there is no other way for our sin to be paid for except through the perfect sacrifice of the one and only God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was sinless and yet who represented humanity. So the incarnation, God with us, God taking on human flesh, was utterly necessary because he could not die for the sins of the world and represent us unless he became fully man, and he was not qualified to be a perfect sacrifice unless he was fully God. When we get to heaven, we will see the only God-man in all eternity, and he is there now at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us 24-7. And when you look in the mirror, you fall on your face and you say, Lord, I need your intercession. I need your intercession. So when John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, Andrew and John knew that this was a name for Messiah, and they followed him, right? Isaiah 53 tells us that. They followed him physically, but it also indicates that they shifted their allegiance from John the Baptist to Jesus. And John, of course, has been talking, you follow him, not me. So when Jesus saw that Andrew and John are following him, he turned around and he says, what do you seek? Which is an extraordinarily good question. What are you pursuing? What are you seeking? Are you looking for a revolutionary Messiah who's going to, you know, declare war on Rome? Are you looking for a health and wealth Messiah that's going to make you prosperous and happy? By the way, Jesus does the same thing today. When you come to Christ, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? And you say, well, I'm already saved. I get it. 
When you pray to the risen Christ, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What are you pursuing? Why are you following Jesus? Absolute truth is, many people say, I'm following him because of what he can do for me. Which is, by the way, that's legitimate. I used to tell the Lord, Lord, I love you, but I also need you. And I feel bad that I need you. I should just love you because you're worth loving. And he said, if you forget the fact that you need me, you will not love me properly. You do need me. Your next breath comes from me, big boy. So that humility is very, very, very important. But I think it's extraordinarily important for us to say, when we come to the Lord, what are we seeking? And of course, the correct answer to that is Him. Him. Everything your soul desires is in Him. He said, seek first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness and all this stuff are usually our prayer requests, all this stuff, will be added to you. You're going to get it, but it's found in him. And they said, Rabbi. Rabbi is a title that means teacher. It was a very honorary title back then. And they asked him an interesting question. They asked him a question. They said, where are you staying? So John the Baptist has really been endorsing Jesus as the Messiah, and they want to spend more time with him. So they say, where are you staying? They want to understand his mission. They want to understand his goals. They want to be his students. By the way, the word disciple means learner. They want to learn from him. And Jesus said, what? Come and see. Come and see. By the way, that's a pretty good invitation. Come and see. Come and experience life with me. Come and experience the life of Christ. You could do far worse than that, and you're going to find out that that's a very good invitation for other Christians to invite Christians. Come and see. So when did this occur? Well, the Jews divided the daylight period of the day into 12 one-hour periods. And for the Jews, 6 a.m. was hour one. So the 10th hour of the day would be 4 p.m. in the afternoon, if you're going on Jewish time. Now, the Romans calculated time for midnight. That's when day hour one started. So the 10th hour for the Romans would be 10 a.m. We're not sure which one it is, probably 10 a.m., but regardless... It is interesting that John, his first meeting with the Lord is so impactful that he records the very hour that he first started following the Lord. Obviously, it changed his life as we know forever. Apparently, they spent quite some time with Jesus that first day. I would have loved to hear the conversation. I wonder what they talked about. You know, it's interesting. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Andrew brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, quote, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translates Peter. Here's the principle. Jesus has the power to change sinners into saints. Jesus has the power to change sinners into saints. So Andrew is one of the most underrated characters in Scripture, I'm convinced. He found his own brother Peter and brought him to Christ. Now the name Simon is probably derived from the tribal name Simeon. It's probably where it came from. Virtually everywhere Andrew is mentioned three times, He's always bringing somebody to Jesus. That's what he does. He brings his brother Peter. Later on, remember, we see him bringing the lad with five loaves and two fishes. He brings him and his lunch to Jesus by the sea so he can feed the 5,000. And even later on in, in the 12th chapter, he's bringing Greeks to Jesus. They want to see Jesus. So God has designed the good news, the gospel, to be spread by us by someone telling someone about Jesus. It's a relational transfer. God could have written the gospel on the skies, but he decided in his infinite wisdom that he wanted the gospel to be transmitted people to people to people. Someone who knows Jesus tells someone about Jesus who does not yet know Jesus. So the implication here is pretty simple. Andrew is an extraordinary role model. He doesn't try and save anybody. What does he do? Bring him to Jesus. Bring him to Jesus. Bring him to Jesus. I don't care what their problem is. 
Christ is ultimately the only solution for that problem. We cannot save people from sin. Only Christ can do that. But we can introduce people to the Savior like Andrew. Now, the word Messiah, he says, we've seen the Messiah. We found the Messiah. The Hebrew is Christos in Greek. Messiah in Hebrew is Christos in Greek or Christ. And it means, quote, the anointed one. So anytime you're seeing the word Messiah or Christ, that's a title. That's not the name. Jesus is his name, Savior. Christ is his title, the anointed one. And an anointed one has been someone who's been set apart for specific service. Ancient Israel anointed their kings, anointed their high priests with oil to symbolize they've been set apart for God's service in a specific way. And oil in the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, oil throughout Scripture, refers to the Holy Spirit quite often. So when someone's anointed with oil for service, it is a metaphor, it is a picture of them being filled with the Holy Spirit for that job description, whether it was king or priest or whatever. And one of Jesus' titles was Messiah. He was the supreme example of someone that God anointed and appointed for the single purpose of dying for the sins of the world. So Jesus sees Peter, sees Simon. He looks at him. Have you noticed that Jesus not only looks at people, he looks into people. If you are Peter, you are Simon, and you walk up and you're going to shake Jesus' hand, and he says, your name is Simon. I'm changing your name to Peter. Whoa, you don't even know me. You haven't met me yet. See, humans, we look at the outside. God sees the inside. About a thousand years early, God commanded the prophet Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king over Israel. And Jesse had quite a few sons. Samuel was very impressed with how Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, looked. I mean, he was tall, dark, and handsome. And it says that he thought for sure that God was going to say, anoint that one, that's king, because he was very impressive on the outside. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, quote, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at the height of his stature, because... I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Peter looks at, I mean, God looks at Peter, and he looks into Peter, and he knows his character, and he immediately changes his name. And you say, well, why is that so important? Well, in the Bible, your name represented your character. It represented your identity. It represented your destiny. Your name was everything you were. It represented the core of who you are. And the name Cephas uh, in Hebrew is Peter in Greek. And the word that comes, of course, Peter comes from the word rock, Aramaic word rock. So the real issue here is not Peter's name change. That's not the point. The real issue is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has defined authority to change your name and change your character. God in the flesh can do whatever he chooses to do. God has the power not just to change your name. God's got the power to change your character so that you live up to the new name he gave you. What's interesting, when Jesus looked at Peter, at Simon, what did he know about him? What do we know about Simon? He was flaky. He was impulsive. He was impetuous. I like this guy. He opened his mouth and inserted foot. He was always talking before thinking. When you read about Peter, the three and a half years he walked with the Lord, most of the time he had ran his mouth and then thought about it. Later, you know, probably should have thought about it first. But Jesus knew that he was going to change Simon's character into a rock, into stability, into strength. By the way, he didn't ask Peter's permission to change his name. You know why? Because he's God. He can do what he wants, right? We're not told how Peter responded to Jesus' name change. I didn't say what he says. We do know this. Over the next three years, God shaped Peter into the rock that the first church was going to need 
And you see that on full display in Acts, the first 12 chapters of Acts. You see Peter, filled with the Spirit, being the rock and the foundation and the primary speaking disciple apostle for the church of Jesus Christ in the first part of Acts. And so, you know, what's the application? Well, when God looks at us, he looks into us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows where we're weak. He knows where we're strong. He knows where we're foolish. He knows where we trust ourselves. Here's the point. God calls you to himself where you were at that point, and he was never fooled about where you were. He knew, he knew where you were. But he loves you too much to leave you there. Every single one of us are in the process of being shaped more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. God designs every single circumstance in our life to accomplish us a goal is making us more and more like Jesus. Everything that happens to us is designed for that purpose. In some ways, God is like a sculptor who takes a hammer and chisels away everything in our life that's not like the image of Jesus. Have you ever been hammered or chiseled by the Lord? It's kind of painful. Sometimes it's agonizingly painful. But the end result, of course, will honor Christ and bless you for all eternity. Maybe even more appropriately, God changes us from the inside out. Like um, maybe a tadpole metamorphosis is into a frog or a caterpillar into a butterfly. Almighty God changes us from the inside out and makes us what? Brand new creatures. In Christ, all things are what? Made new. I want you to know that, that the nation that we call Israel today at that point was divided into several sections. Judea and Jerusalem, the capital, are in the south. This was the religious center of Israel at that point in time. Samaria is in the middle, and Galilee is in the north. And then, of course, to the way north, you have what is modern-day Lebanon, Phoenicia, and the northwest you have modern-day Syria. I want you to remember, Samaria is populated with a mixed race of Jews and Gentiles. When Assyria captured the northern ten tribes, took them into captivity in 722, they brought a bunch of Gentiles into the land who intermarried with the Jews that were left. So they became known as the Samaritans because the capital city of that region was Samaria. The Jews in Judea in the south and the Jews in Galilee in the north hated the Samarians. I mean hated them, despised them. They thought they were a mongrel half-breed, spiritually half-breed and certainly biological half-breed, and they were extraordinarily prejudiced against them. As a matter of fact, they would not travel from Judea to Galilee if they had to go through Samaria. They would go east, across the Jordan River, into the Decapolis, into Greek territory, and circle around and come to Galilee, but they would not put their foot on Samaritan soil. So when we get to Jesus having a conversation with a Samaritan woman, it was unthinkable to the disciples that he would do that. So... On the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee is the hometown of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. It's called Bethsaida. It's a little fishing village. And if you go to the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, you see the little town of Capernaum. Capernaum is where their fishing businesses were located. Capernaum becomes the central organizing city or village where Christ did a lot of ministry in Galilee for the better part of a year and a half to two years. So that's his base of operations. Now keep that in mind, verse 43. The next day, Jesus purposed to go in Galilee. He's down south in Judea. He's by the Jordan River, because that's where John was baptizing. This all took place down by the Jordan River. To the east of Jerusalem is where he is now. And it says he's purposing to go up to Galilee. And he found Philip. Jesus found Philip. And Jesus said to him two words, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So these three guys are from the same city. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets have wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, quote, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Here's the principle. Following Jesus means pursuing him. It means doing his will, not my will. So it begs the question, what does it mean to follow someone? Well, when you follow someone, you're going down the same path they are on, right? You're following the path they're taking, and you tend to experience the same events on that path. Following Jesus means you go where he goes, you do what he does, and you live as he lives. Following is not passive. It's active. You are not following Jesus by being drugged with a rope, right? Following Jesus means pursuing him. It means passionately pursuing him. Ultimately, following means obeying. It means to imitate the one you were following, in this case, the risen Christ. And you follow someone, why? Because they know the way to the destination. Jesus said what? I am the way. The way to what? The way to God. The way to heaven. The way to eternal life. Jesus does not merely show us the way. He himself is the way to God. Because he was God's perfect um, God-man and his sacrifice for sin reconciled my broken relationship with God. So the cross of Christ is the bridge between earth and heaven. You want to know the Father? What did Jesus say? I'm the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the words follow me are found 13 times in the Gospels. Jesus called many of his disciples by simply saying, follow me. He used Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They immediately left their fishing business and followed Jesus. By the way, following can be expensive. Matthew, also known as Levi, um, was an IRS agent for Rome, and he was wealthy. He left a very lucrative tax business when he followed Christ. It's even more expensive than that. As far as we know, 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred for following Christ. Following Christ is expensive, but it's worth it. It begins by turning away from sin and turning to Jesus for forgiveness. That's where following begins. Follow me, by the way, is not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus said, you follow me, given by God himself. And of course, Jesus came to call sinners to follow him. What did he say in Matthew 9, 13? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you're going to follow Christ and you're a sinner, you can't follow him unless you have a radical change in the direction of your life. Before we came to Christ, we were following what? Sin and self, and Satan. And Jesus said, follow me. That means we had to do a 180. That's what repent means. It means to change your mind and change your direction. Because you can't follow Christ and follow your lusts at the same time. No one can serve two masters. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. So when we follow Christ, we die to our self-will, we obey his will, and we become all he created us to be. The Satan will lie to you and tell you that freedom is in following your own lusts. Absolutely, I'll tell you that. That's what he told Adam and Eve. We know that's a lie. Slavery to self is probably the worst of all slaveries because the lusts of your heart are never satisfied. No matter how much of this life's pleasure you pursue, sex, drugs, rock and roll, food, money, wealth, power, fame, fame, whatever it happens to be, whatever it is, at the end of the day, you wind up hungry and you're still thirsty. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much you achieve. It doesn't matter how much fame you get. It's never enough. What did Jesus say about following him, about service to him? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Following Christ means unconditional surrender. It means surrender without any conditions, stipulations, deal-making, bargaining, or everything else. Because following Jesus means submitting your entire life to him. There's no, there's no area of your life that's not under his control. By the way, that produces great peace. If every area of your life is under his control, then there's absolutely nothing that happens to you without his permission. And as his child, that gives us tremendous peace and tremendous comfort. What did Philip tell Nathaniel after God told him to follow him? He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke. By the way, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Christ. So all the Jews, they were expecting a Messiah. They knew he was coming. Philip says, this Jesus is from Nazareth. And by the way, he's the son of Joseph, both of which were somewhat accurate and somewhat inaccurate. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Joseph was Jacob's, I mean, Joseph was Jesus' legal father. Who was his eternal father? God, of course. In his hometown, he was known as the son of Joseph, and that's how Philip knew him. And of course, Nathaniel asks, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, this is just regional prejudice, right? I mean, they just said, man, this is just Hicksville, right? The southern region of Judea, they thought northern Galilee were Hicks, country bumpkins, right? And the people in Galilee, they thought Nazareth was where the Hicks were, right? So we all got this regional prejudice, you know, we're better than you are. The truth is, Nazareth was a no-name village, right? I mean, there was really no reputation. There was insignificant. I mean, there was nothing to look at there. So Nathaniel couldn't believe that God, the Messiah, would come from a place like Nazareth. It was incomprehensible. I mean, they, they were expecting a, a, a king. And this king would be born, of course, in some important place, not in a place like Nazareth at that point. So he's having trouble with his belief system. Philip simply says what? Come and see. Meet Jesus yourself. Draw your own conclusions. Try it, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come experience Jesus yourself. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, said of him, quote, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to them, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's the principle. Jesus is God's, quote, ladder, unquote, between heaven and earth. If you want to know what God says, listen to Jesus. Jesus is God's ladder between heaven and earth. If you want to know what, Jesus, what God says, listen to Jesus. So Nathaniel comes up, and Jesus immediately makes a commentary and a statement about what? His character. Not what he's wearing, but what his heart is like. And it's a fascinating commentary. It's a, it's a reference to the namesake of the nation, Jacob. Jacob was a self-centered deceiver. He was a user. He used people. If you read the life of Jacob, he was always lying, conniving, deceiving, trying to get what he wanted for himself. He took advantage of his brother, his own twin brother, Esau. When he was famished, he said, if you'll sell me the birthright, which is the right to inherit double, I'll give you a bowl of pottage, a bowl of soup. Esau was so famished, he said, done, sold. Sold double the inheritance for a bowl of soup because he was famished. Later on, uh, Jacob and his wonderful mother conspired to lie to his blind father Isaac in order to steal the blessing, which was pretty much the whole inheritance. So Jacob had a long history of being a deceiver. By the way, 
His name means heel catcher. Heel catcher. Now Esau and Jacob were twins. Twins. And in the womb they were fighting. In Rebekah's womb. And she and Isaac went to the Lord and said, Why are these two babies beating on each other in my womb? Apparently they've been going on for some time. And God said, there are two nations in your womb, and they are struggling for supremacy. So when Esau was born first, and came out of the birth canal, head first, and then heels, Jacob's hand was grabbing Esau's heel in the birth canal, on the way out the door into life. So they named him, obviously, heel catcher, right? Also means supplanter. And he spent most of his life living up to that reputation. However, a number of decades later, he was over 100, or pretty close to that, he spent all night wrestling with God one night, and God did what? Changed his name to Israel. And the name Israel means he who prevails with God or prince with God. So God changed Jacob's name to Israel in the same way he changed Simon's name to Peter, because he was going to do a work in their lives and shape their character to live up to the name that he had chosen for them to fulfill his purpose. So God, through Christ, now calls Nathanael an Israelite in whom there is no guile, which literally means you are an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Wow. Now, Nathaniel's obviously not a deceiver. He's a man of integrity, character, and he's a man of pure heart. How would you like it if God himself said that about you? Behold, your name is one of mine in whom there is no deceit, no guile, no lion, no whatever. No, you know, I mean, it's a, quite a compliment. Nathaniel asked Jesus a very good question. How do you know me? I don't know you. I've just met you. And you're making comments about my character. Nathaniel doesn't know Jesus, but Jesus knows Nathaniel. How much did you know about Jesus when he called you? How well did he know you when he called you? Completely. Thoroughly. With nothing hidden. Jesus said to Nathanael, I'm going to demonstrate my omniscience. Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. I know all about you. You were in your hometown in Cana sitting under a fig tree. And that requires supernatural vision, right? I mean, if you can see what's out of sight, obviously it means you have omnipresence, it means you're everywhere present. And Jesus said, I not only can see where you were physically, I can see where you are spiritually, I can see into your heart, which requires omniscience. Those are godlike attributes. Dan David references in Psalm 139, he's talking about the Lord in relationship to us, and he says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. So far, so good. Here's the terrifying one. You understand my thoughts from afar. One of the most sobering things that occurred in my Christian life early on is when I realized that my thought life was completely transparent to my Savior. Everything that I was thinking, every image, every word, everything was transparent to him. And I was accountable to manage and discipline my thought life because that is what determined my behavior. For most of us in this room, sin is far more than physically breaking one of God's laws. It's what goes on up here. But it's also terribly comforting because the Lord knows everything, so he's never disappointed. He already knows it. So when we confess, we're not telling him anything new. We're simply saying, Lord, you know. I'm just being honest with you and telling you what you already know. Here's what's remarkable. Jesus says, Nathaniel, I know where you were physically under the tree. 
Even more importantly, I'm telling you what you were thinking about when you were under the tree. He was meditating on Jacob's dream at Bethel. Genesis 28 records that Jacob was traveling to his mother's family in Padanaram to find a wife, godly wife. He went to sleep under the stars one night. He had a dream about a ladder that went up and down from heaven, right? This ladder came from heaven to earth, and there were angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And the Lord God Almighty is at the top of this ladder in heaven, and he makes Jacob some remarkable promises. He promises to give Jacob and his descendants the land upon which he's sleeping. Furthermore, even remarkable, he promises to be with Jacob wherever he goes, to keep him wherever he goes, and to bring him back into this land. And Jacob recognizes that God is present. He called the place Bethel, which means house of God. One of the most astonishing statements he makes, he said, the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Has that ever occurred to you? Ever been someplace and the Lord's present and you were not aware that he was present? He's always present. It's how aware are we of his presence. That's the issue. Are we paying attention? Do we, do we live in light of the fact that he's with us 24 by 7? That's one of the greatest comforts in the world. No matter what's going on in your world, whether you're on the operating table or wherever you are, the Lord is with you. That's why he said Bethel, house of God. So Jesus is using Jacob's dream to describe the greater revelation that Nathaniel and the rest of the disciples are going to receive from him as the Messiah. So the heavens in Jacob's dream is a picture of the insight that the disciples of Christ will receive as they spend time with him. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. I'm going to tell you what's going on. The angels, of course, are a picture of people's prayers ascending into heaven and God's revelation descending to the earth. We live in a two-story house, so what a staircase does in a house, it makes travel between the first and second floors possible, right? And it makes communication possible. Elevators do the same thing or escalators, but we're talking about a staircase. So this picture is rather interesting because Jesus is the one and only God-man is God's, to quote a phrase, stairway to heaven. It's his ladder to heaven. It's Jesus is the way to heaven. Jesus is fully God in heaven, and he's fully man on earth. He's the only one that can go between God and heaven because he's fully God and fully man at the same time. He is the key to accessing God and communicating with God. So in the same way that God had revealed himself to Jacob through a dream, Jesus is saying, God is revealing me to the world, himself to the world through me. No man comes to the Father but through me. So if you want to know what God says, if you want to know what God thinks, if you want to know what God's plan is, if you want to know the character of God, it's real simple. Look at Christ. Listen to Christ, right? Jesus is God's only way to heaven. And I think we know that. We've been exposed to that. But as I said previously, I don't think we understand the full implications of what it took to make that happen. That's why Christmas is utterly amazing. The most profound words in Scripture probably are, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. God was so in love with his creatures, humankind, that he said, I'm going to become one in order to redeem them, and I'm just not going to become one temporarily. I, the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, will forever be God-man. He took on human form, not just on earth. He has human form in heaven today. That kind of love is amazing. It's almost incomprehensible. And it's a call to worship. Oh, come let us adore him is not just the word. He is worthy of our adoration and worthy of our worship. 
Okay, let's review, and then Tom will come and do prayer and praises for us. First, these are theologically very profound truths, and I write them down, meditate on them, ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind to what they mean. Jesus is God's perfect lamb who came to earth to pay the penalty for human sin by dying in the place of the sinner. That's the only reason he came, not to hang a tree and give you presents. He is the present. He is the gift of life. That's why we celebrate his incarnation, his coming in the flesh as a baby in Bethlehem. Number two, God's perfect justice was completely satisfied by the sacrifice of the sinless God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not understand how serious sin is. We don't, because we're sinners. The truth of it is, if it took the death of the most perfect being that ever lived in order to pay the penalty for sin, that should give you an idea of how serious God views sin and how much he loves us. So when you think about John 3.16, think about the cost to the Father... By the way, I'll donate my son to nobody. I don't love you that much. But he does. That's what's amazing, right? Number three, Jesus has the power to change sinners into saints. This gives us hope. He not only saves us one time at the moment of salvation, he is shaping us throughout our life to make us more like him, more like Jesus, more holy, more loving, more merciful, more gracious, more giving, etc., etc. What's our part? Following Jesus means pursuing him. This requires activity. How do you pursue him? Well, you spend time with him. Love means T-I-M-E, time. Following Jesus means pursuing him. It means doing his will, not my will. That's a great way to begin every prayer and end every prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. Because with God, nothing is impossible, as we found out this morning, right? So be it done to me according to your will, just like Mary said, as you heard this morning. And lastly, Jesus is God's ladder, God's staircase between heaven and earth. If you want to know what God is up to, if you want to know what God says, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to have a relationship with him, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. That's why we call this season Christmas. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. Love you guys. Thank you so much. God bless. Now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.